Welcome to part nine of the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast presentation of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation. Before we get started in this week's installment, where Nate has another strange experience that advances Max's investigation, and Dave has an interesting conversation with Diane's neighbor, Rose, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share. It really helps me to allow to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So, make sure to follow all of the authors on Amazon using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 26 Nate opened the door to his house. Jennifer strode past him and made her way to the sofa. Would you like to come in? He asked sarcastically as he closed the door. Madge trotted in from the kitchen, jumped up onto the sofa, and laid her head in Jennifer's lap. Hello, gorgeous, she said, rubbing the dog between its ears. Nate shook his head. How in the world did she get in? I don't have a doggy door. He closed the front door. Jennifer lifted Madge's head so she could look into the dog's eyes. You're not an outside doggy, are you? She asked. Madge whined her agreement. I'll bet it's my mother. She comes by from time to time to clean and buy groceries. Or it could be your great aunt. Ha ha, Nate laughed sarcastically. He crossed over to the easy chair and carefully lowered himself down, taking care not to jostle his shoulder. We're not going to do this, he declared. Do what? You know, this whole thing where you try to convince me there are ghosts everywhere. Not everywhere, but certainly you have to admit sometimes strange things happen, she said, gesturing at Madge. And sometimes they happen in the house where a woman who loved animals lived and died. I should never have brought you to meet my uncle. He's a real sweetheart. You should visit him more often. Maybe it'll rub off on you. Nate smirked at her. Maybe you're right, she said. Maybe there is a perfectly reasonable explanation of how your dog escaped from a locked cage. There is. And I'm sure it's just as reasonable as the explanation of what's happening with Diane. It's the ex-boyfriend, Nate says. Is that what your gut is telling you? Jennifer asked. It's what the evidence is telling me. He's trying to spook her, make her afraid, then swing in to rescue her. She's not interested. They're just friends. Is that your gut telling you that? Or your woman's intuition? She had no pictures of the two of them, at least not anywhere out in the open. You do that. Get rid of the photographic evidence when you've written a guy off. He may not have gotten the message. Maybe. I'm just saying if he tries to rescue her, he's going to find out that he's trapped in the friend zone. I hope that's all it comes to, Nate sighed. Sometimes guys don't know how to take no for an answer. Jennifer shrugged off his response, changing the subject. Anything you want me to add to the shopping list? Shopping list for what? Snacks for the stakeout at Diane's. Nate shook his head. Oh no, I'll bring the food. Ooh, cop stakeout food. Let me guess. Red Bull and red vines? Donuts? Nate shook his head. Nothing of the kind. You won't be getting my full culinary repertoire, he added, lifting his bad arm slightly. But I can assure you, any pastries that may or may not be present will not be deep-fried nuts of dough. Ah, a chef. Well then, it's a date. I'll bring the motion sensors, infrared cameras, and electromagnetic field detectors. You bring the food. Chapter 27 Dave walked through the large office that had been converted to a storeroom, mentally imagining how it would look with his desk, maybe a television on the wall, a nice bookcase, Perhaps a small couch. He shook off the daydreaming and returned to inventorying the items on a clipboard, 
the list of equipment Dr. Day had requested for the Diane Collins case. He picked up one device he didn't recognize. Something new from bits, he suspected. It looked like a camera, but instead of a lens, there was a circle of metal perforated with hundreds of holes. It kind of reminded him of what you might find covering a shower drain. Careful with that, it'll make you sterile, said Bits from the doorway, surprising Dave. He almost dropped the device, and in the process, accidentally switched it on. It made a pinging noise. He fumbled to find the off switch, holding it as far away from himself as he could. Bits stepped into the supply room, took the device from Dave, and pressed a button that silenced the machine. He placed it back on the shelf. Trust me, that one's not on Dr. Day's list. Thanks, Dave said. He was sometimes wary of Bits. The guy never gave him the impression that they were actually friends, but there were times when he helped him sort out a computer issue or upgrade his cable when it felt like they were more than just co-workers. Bits was a bit of a puzzle to Dave, but then again most people were. Ironically, everyone else, especially Dr. Day, had Dave figured out completely. Dave, Jennifer shouted from her office. Just a minute, Dave shouted back. I'm in the supplies office, he called it that, just to bring attention to the fact that even the filing cabinets had a higher priority than he did around here. He set the clipboard down on the shelf, then he slid past Bits and headed for Dr. Day's office. Emily was there, seated in one of the modern library chairs that were positioned in front of the desk. Jennifer looked up at him and smiled. Come on in, have a seat. I was just going over the canvassing checklist with Emily. Dave stayed where he was. Great, I'm sure she'll do a wonderful job. I'm going to go finish up the inventory. I asked Bits to finish that up. I need you to help Emily. Dave started to back out of the office. She's so much better with people than I am, he insisted. Don't be silly. You're my top guy, and this is an important case. I need it done right. Dave froze in his tracks. Damn. How did she do that? How did she make the one job he hated most feel like the one thing she was depending on him to do? He sighed and walked up to the seat in front of the desk next to Emily and sat down. So, as I was telling Emily, I want you to talk to as many of Diane's neighbors as you can. See if you can get them to tell you if they've seen anything strange or unusual. Things out of place? Weird noises? Why don't we just cut to the chase and ask them if they've seen any ghosts? Emily asked. You can't do that, Dave explained. They may have witnessed something irrelevant to them, but relevant to us. You know, it's extremely unlikely the phenomenon they may have witnessed is going to be a full-on visible spirit. Exactly, Jennifer agreed. You should do Diane's floor and the ones directly above and below her. And if you run into the building superintendent, or a janitor, or someone like that, see if you can get them talking. You really are picking the two worst people to try to get other people to open up to them. Speak for yourself, weirdo, Emily said deadpan. Dave shrugged while casting a sideways glance at his co-worker. Jennifer smiled. You two are exactly the type for the job. People are suspicious if you're too slick or come off as disingenuous. No danger of that with us, Dave confirmed. There was a knock at Jennifer's open office door. I hope we're not bothering you, the dean said with a surprising differential tone. Jennifer looked up from the desk. She saw that there was an elderly man a step behind the dean, wearing a suit that matched his gray hair and eyes. Even his skin had a monotone pallor. The only color was the violet necktie and matching pocket square. Not at all, she answered. Her mind instantly connected the dean's guest to the cursory search she had done on the donor whose largesse was overflowing into her professional career. She stood and made her way around the desk, smiling. Mr. Worthington, I presume, she said, extending a hand to the older gentleman. He smiled back, the effort accentuating a web of creases and crinkles in his skin. Professor Day, it is an honor to meet you, he said, shaking her hand gently, yet warmly. Please call me Jennifer, she said. 
I was just showing Daniel how some of his donation will be put to use, the dean interjected. Yes, I'm very pleased to see that Professor Day has such a befitting space to engage in her important work. Of course, the dean assured. She's not only one of our top teachers, but also a cutting-edge researcher. Jennifer could see the effort the dean was making to choke the words out. Doing it in front of her certainly added to the pain. Yes, Robert has pledged his ongoing and unconditional support. We're lucky to have him as our dean. Dave barely stifled a laugh. Emily muttered under her breath. Are we in one of those sci-fi body snatcher movies? Jennifer shot them both a warning glance. Mr. Worthington, the dean tells me that there's something I might be able to help you with. Worthington nodded. Yes, indeed. I certainly hope you can. That would be so reassuring. They all waited for a moment for him to explain, but no additional words were forthcoming. Jennifer cleared her throat. Um, <clears throat> what is it? Oh, I don't want to get into it here, he turned to the dean. Have you not told her of my plans? he asked. Not yet, the dean answered. I thought it would be better coming from you. Ah, yes, quite, Worthington stuttered. I'm having a party, you see, in your honor, he said to Jennifer. My honor? Jennifer asked, casting an inquisitive glance toward the dean, who was conspicuously avoiding making eye contact. I'm flattered. It will be at my home Wednesday evening. My personal chef has a spectacular seven-course meal planned. He has two Michelin stars and a James Beard Award as well as being an extraordinary sommelier. Oh, I meant to ask, do you have any food allergies? No, though I'm not fond of cilantro. Who is? Worthington replied, laughing awkwardly. I will explain everything at the party. You're welcome to bring a guest if you like. Thank you, Jennifer said. She instantly thought of Nate. Perhaps bringing him along to a gourmet meal would help grease the wheels. I'll have June send over the details, the dean assured. Come, Daniel, I want to show you the archives. I think you'll find them very impressive, but sadly in need of some financial attention. Worthington allowed himself to be steered out of the office by the dean, who seemed relieved that the episode was over. Once they were gone, Emily turned to Dr. Day. What was that all about? That was our benefactor, the man who got us out of the basement, Jennifer answered. What do you think he wants? Dave asked. Jennifer shrugged. I don't know. Maybe he wants me to sign my books. Emily shook her head. It won't be anything that simple. It never is. Jennifer waved off Emily's paranoia. You two should get started on canvassing Diane's building. It's almost six o'clock, Dave complained. I have a test I need to study for, Emily added. Fine, Jennifer conceded, but first thing tomorrow evening. Evening? Dave asked. Right. You want to do it when people are home. And in such a good mood because we interrupted their dinner, Emily added, I've always wondered what it feels like to be a telemarketer. Chapter 28 Nate stood in front of his house, alternately staring at his phone and the street as he waited for the tiny car icon on his Uber app to become a real car on his street. He had spent the rest of the weekend and all of Monday recuperating from his Saturday with Jennifer Day. And even then, his respite was interrupted by a call from the persistent professor. She had insisted he accompany her to some function for the university. He had tried to beg off, claiming that he was not physically able to endure a formal event. But then she told him that the event was being catered by an award-winning chef, one whose fare he had been lucky enough to enjoy some years earlier. The promise of a gourmet meal after a week of hospital food and the tepid takeout he had endured since returning home won him over. He glanced at the phone again. The small black car on the map hadn't moved for the last couple of minutes, but then suddenly it zoomed down the line representing a nearby street. 
He looked up and spotted a black Prius as it turned the corner and quickly pulled up in front of him. The driver rolled down his window. Name, he asked perfunctorily. Nate, you? I'm Boris. Get in. Nate mentally reminded himself to take a star off the driver's rating. The man could have offered to open the door for a passenger wearing a sling. He wrangled the door open himself and slid into the back seat on the passenger's side. No complimentary water bottle or phone charger. Just lost another star, Nate thought to himself. You have the destination? Nate asked. Yeah, yeah, I got it, the driver answered in an annoyed tone as he tapped the screen of the phone mounted on his dashboard by a clip on the air vents. A navigational map took over the screen and they were on their way. Nate sat back and stared out the window. He'd spent most of the morning cleaning up after a mess Madge had made after she'd gotten out of her cage and into the garbage. And she'd needed a good hosing off as well, which was difficult to impossible for a one-armed man to do. She kept on trying to bite the stream of water that was attacking her. After a while, he managed to rinse off the worst of it and dry her off with an old beach towel. After exerting himself all morning, Nate was rethinking his plan to head down to the police academy shooting range and test his left-handed shooting. His Uncle Bill had always stressed that it was important for a policeman to be proficient shooting with either hand, but he really hadn't focused on his marksmanship the last few years. He had a personal revolver he usually kept locked up in a safe in his bedroom nightstand, now tucked discreetly in a holster under his jacket. He'd had to reconfigure it so the gun sat under his right armpit rather than the left, and then further adjust it so as not to interfere with his injury, a feat almost as difficult as bathing Madge. He stared out the window, not focusing on the surroundings, but rather on the facts of the case. He was working with Jennifer. Dr. Day, he corrected himself, in his mind. He had realized this morning that he was now thinking of it as a case. It was as if the cop part of his brain needed a crime to solve, so adopted this situation and started breaking it down as he would an official investigation. He reminded himself to start compiling his notes later, maybe even construct a timeline on a whiteboard. It actually felt good to be in detective mode. It was the kind of thing he didn't realize how much he missed until it was gone. Now part of him had reawoken, and the depression that was beginning to set in was pushed aside by his renewed purpose. There was also a part of him that was admittedly flattered by Dr. Day's flirtations. He wasn't quite sure if she was serious, or just trying to get close to him to worm her way into his mind. He found himself hoping it was the former. She was undeniably attractive, but Nate was even more drawn to her intellect. He downloaded one of her books the previous night. Most of the material he found on the fantastic side, but the research was well-referenced and the writing style cogent and even entertaining. She obviously wasn't some new-age kook he could easily dismiss. He'd have to do some of his own research to provide counterpoints to the assertions she made. Regardless, reading her liturgy of suspected paranormal cases had put him in a strange state of mind. His dreams included fragments of the robbery, and more disturbing, that eerie vision he had during the fog of anesthesia. In some ways, his recollection of that dream seemed more vivid than what he could recall about the actual shooting. He toyed with the idea of telling Jennifer about the dream, just to get her off his back about the whole near-death experience thing, but he knew that it would just fuel her curiosity rather than quench it. After a while, Nate realized he had been lost in thought so deeply that he had lost track of his surroundings. He looked at the landmarks passing by and realized that he was in the Tenderloin and not anywhere close to the police academy. Hey, I think you're going the wrong way. Nate said to the driver. Boris looked at Nate through the rearview mirror, then glanced at his phone. This is the destination you put in. It's not wrong. No refund. I wasn't asking for one. Nate pulled out his phone and checked the address he had submitted for the ride. The driver was right. He had put in an address in the Tenderloin, and it wasn't even something that could be mistaken for the police academy. Somehow, he had entered a completely random address, and they were almost there. 
The driver pulled up to the small rundown house and put the car in park and tapped the confirmation prompts on the screen that ended the ride. You want me to take you someplace else? That's a new ride. Yeah, give me a second, Nate said as he started typing in the address for the police academy. He glanced over at the house, frustrated that he had made such a time-wasting mistake. He froze. He recognized that house. It was the one from his dream. The one in which he had imagined a conversation between the two men who had robbed the store and shot him. Wait, he told the driver. I'm getting out here. Suit yourself, the driver said as he sat behind the wheel, waiting for Nate to struggle to get out of the back seat. The second the door closed, the Prius was on its way. Nate stood at the curb looking at the house. It was the same house. He looked to the driveway where there had been a car parked in his dream, but there was nothing there now. Nate scanned his memory, trying to remember when he was last here. It must have been on some other case. He never worked patrol in the Tenderloin when he was a uniformed officer, so he wouldn't have been here for a domestic disturbance or to serve a warrant. But he couldn't recall any cases that he had in the Tenderloin that ever took him to a place remotely like this one. He would have remembered the low stone fence. That is something that would have stuck in his memory. He walked up the path to the front door. A chill ran down his spine as he recalled again the dream and the sensation of floating. When he reached the front door, he extended his good hand to the knob and turned it. It moved freely. He pushed on the door, but the deadbolt prevented him from opening it. Nate took a step back and surveyed the property. He walked around to the back of the house and spied another door. He tried it as well, but no luck. Then he noticed the bedroom window partially obscured by weeds that appeared to be open. He looked around to make sure no one was watching, then walked across the scrubby yard to the window. It was indeed open a few inches, and the screen was torn away. He tentatively pulled up on the window with a bit of force. It slid upward, creating an opening large and low enough for Nate to enter. He hesitated. Technically, this was breaking and entering. If he was conducting an official investigation, he would need a warrant to enter. Otherwise, anything he might find inside would be tainted. But he was currently inactive as a police officer and not acting in any official way. He was committing a crime and would be arrested if he was caught. But if he found anything, he could call it into the department tip line anonymously. He lifted his leg, stepped inside, and ducked under the window sash. The place smelled stale, a combination of rotting food and cigarette smoke. There was a crash from another part of the house. Nate drew his gun. It was uncomfortable to reach under the sling, but he managed to pull the gun free and hold it firmly in his left hand. He stepped slowly and quietly through the bedroom toward the hallway, listening. There was a scratching noise, then a sort of chittering sound. Nate continued down the hallway until it opened into the living room. There was no one there. He cautiously moved into the kitchen. On the floor was a broken jar with some remnants of jelly in it that a hungry raccoon was eagerly licking up. Shoo! Nate shouted, waving his gun at the animal. It looked up at him as if to say, Find your own jelly, I got here first. Nate pointed his gun at the raccoon. Apparently, this was a gesture the creature recognized, because it dropped the broken jar segment it was holding and scurried into one of the cupboards. From the sound of it, there was a kind of tunnel to the outside. Nate didn't bother to investigate the creature's egress. Instead, he holstered his weapon and started looking around the kitchen for any clues the previous occupants might have left behind besides their favorite flavor of jelly. He put on a nitrile glove, one of a pair that he always had stuffed into the pockets of his suit jackets, then started opening cabinet doors. Most were empty, but there were some that had canned goods that were still within their expiration date. There might be fingerprints on them, but Nate wasn't equipped to gather that type of evidence. He needed something that would link the residents of this house to the robbers. He stopped and shook off that thought. It was crazy for him to think that the robbers had actually used this place as a hideout. There was another explanation. 
Maybe he had never been here before, but he had come across this address while reviewing another case, or one that he had been consulted on. The notion that he had dreamed it was too fantastical for him to take seriously. He found a receipt tucked in a drawer, but it was from two years earlier. Nothing else gave him any clue as to who might have lived here more recently. Nate moved back to the living room and looked around. It was sparse. There was furniture, and again, it was eerily similar, if not identical, to what he had seen in his dream when the two men were arguing. But it was also generic. The furniture was the kind of cheap discount stuff you could find lots of places. There was a fireplace. Nate walked over to it and kneeled down. It was a gas fireplace, but there were ashes in it. He sifted through them and found something solid, a piece of unburned paper, or rather, a small photograph. He picked it out and shook off the ash. It was a photograph of a baby. His mind instantly snapped back to the robbery. The young couple, the locket the woman was so eager to hang on to. When it opened, as the skinny guy was inspecting it, there was a photograph of a baby. This same photograph. Nate felt his heart stop. He dropped the photo into the ashes and covered it back up. He knew he couldn't be the one to discover it. That would bring up too many awkward questions, from Captain Bodie and Dr. Day. Besides, was he sure it was the same photograph? All babies looked alike to him. Best to let the crime scene guy sort it out. Max would know to check with the robbery victims to see if it was something that belonged to any of them, and he was certain that analysis of the ash would reveal that it contained the remnants of ID cards, anything the robbers would want to get rid of that could link them to the crime. Assuming, of course, that this was connected to the same robbery. It could easily be a flophouse used by any number of criminals who used the convenient fireplace to destroy evidence. Nate took one more look around the house, searching the bedrooms, the closets, the bathroom. Nothing jumped out at him, figuratively or literally, and he decided he had spent enough time in the place. He exited the way he came in and closed the window completely. He pulled out his phone and summoned a new Uber to take him to the police academy, then walked up to the corner to wait for his ride and placed a call to the police department tip line. A figure just down the street from the house leaned against a light pole and watched Nate with intense curiosity. It was the skinny guy, his features now hidden behind a beard and sunglasses. He pulled out a burner phone and dialed a number from memory. We have a problem, he said as soon as the call connected. He was at the house. What do you mean, who? The cop we shot. Okay, the cop I shot. Deuce's guy Julio tipped me off that someone was snooping around. Well, I don't know what he was doing or how he found it, but we gotta move again. And we gotta clear our debt with Deuce soon so we can get out of this town already. He ended the call, broke the phone in half, and dumped it down a storm drain grate then walked away in the opposite direction from Nate. Chapter 29 Emily and Dave stepped off the elevator onto Diane's floor. Emily looked bored, while Dave wore a mantle of anxiety. So, you want to split up, or... Yeah, let's split up, Emily answered before Dave was able to finish the question. What are you going to tell them? Dave asked. Emily shrugged. I think I'll go with the building department rodent infestation story. Figure if they have heard any weird noises, the prospect of an invasion of rats might open them up to admitting it. Can't you get arrested for impersonating a building inspector? Emily gave Dave her best are-you-kidding-me look and walked down toward the end of the hall. He followed. They stopped in front of Diane's apartment. Emily looked at the door, checked it against her notes. I'll take this side, she said. We already know this one has definitely seen something. Dave watched as Emily moved on to the next door and knocked. A middle-aged man answered. She said something to him, and the man invited her in. Dave worried for a second about Emily disappearing inside a strange man's apartment, but then remembered it was Emily. Good luck to the strange man. He turned to the door that was directly across from Diane's, took a deep breath, and knocked. He waited a moment, 
then let out a sigh of relief. They probably weren't home. One fewer stranger for him to have to interact with. Dave turned and took a step when he heard a faint voice from inside the apartment. Just a minute, I'm coming, it said. About a minute later, the door opened a crack. Yes, asked the elderly woman inside. Can I help you? Hi, I'm Dave. Then he froze. The carefully worded script he had crafted and rehearsed blanked from his mind. Instead, he just blurted out, Have you heard any strange noises or anything that might be strange or unusual or out of the ordinary? He braced himself, waiting for the door to close in his face. Instead, it opened wider. Oh, you must be with that woman who's helping poor Diane, the ghost lady. Parapsychologist, Dave corrected. Yeah, some funny name like that. Please, come in. The old woman stood back and made room for Dave to enter. Then she gingerly closed the door, taking one last look out into the hallway as she did so. I do hope you can help Diane. She reminds me of another young woman who used to live in that apartment. Living alone, working long hours. What did you say her name was? Dave. And the woman I work for is Dr. Jennifer Day. Such a pretty name. I'm Rose. That's a pretty name, too, Dave offered nervously. Thank you. Aren't you a charming young man? Make yourself at home. I just have some tea on I need to tend to. Would you like some? No, thank you. Oh, I'll bet you're a milk and cookies man. I'll fix some up for you. That's quite all right. I'm fine. No trouble, Rose insisted, waving off Dave's refusal. Dave started walking around Rose's living room. It seemed like every other old lady's apartment he had been inside. And working with Dr. Day, that had been quite a lot. Old ladies seemed to be particularly sensitive to paranormal activity. Dave had no hard and fast statistics to back that up, but he wondered if it might be because they were so close to death themselves. There were shelves filled with various collectibles and antique photo frames filled with portraits. There was a black and white wedding photo that held a prominent place. He could see the resemblance in the bride's face to Rose. She had been quite an attractive woman in her day. There were other portraits of her over the years, but none of the man from the wedding photo. She didn't seem to be one to display vacation photos, either. Here we are, Rose announced as she returned from the kitchen with a tray laden with a cup of tea and a teapot, a glass of milk, and a plate of Girl Scout cookies. She set them down on a low coffee table and took a seat in an embroidered armchair protected with doilies of varying sizes. Dave took a seat on a small sofa next to the table. Girl Scout cookies, I love those. Yes, there was a young lady in the building who was trying to sell enough to go to camp. I felt so sorry for her. Her mother was barely able to afford the rent. I ended up buying ten cases of them. Wow, that's a lot of cookies. It's going to take a while to get through all those, Dave supposed, as he picked up a cookie and placed it in his mouth. Four years and counting, Rose declared proudly. Dave crunched down on the cookie. It felt as if he had bitten into plaster. He reached for the glass of milk and took a sip, trying to let the milk soak into the cookie in his mouth to soften it up a bit. It didn't help. He ended up crunching the thing into small pebbles and swallowing them with the rest of the glass of milk. Rose sat and smiled at him. He wondered if she knew that the cookies had petrified and if this was some kind of test. He smiled back and dabbed the corners of his mouth with a napkin from the tray. How can I help you, dear? Rose asked. Dave thought he detected a hint of darkness in her tone, but shook off that notion. Well, we're just trying to find out if anyone else in the building has experienced like what your neighbor Diane has. Strange sounds, people who are there one second and gone the next, things out of place. Oh, of course, all of them. This place is quite haunted, after all. Dave couldn't help betraying his surprise. Really? Indeed. There's old Mr. Schotensack, but he's pretty harmless. He was the building superintendent for over fifty years. 
Still hangs around and fixes little problems, tidies up little messes. What else? Dave asked as he grabbed his notebook and started scribbling. Rose leaned back in her chair, staring upward as she fished information out of her voluminous memories. Well, there is some mischievous spirit in the elevators. Sometimes you'll press a floor for a button and it'll take you to a different floor. Or you'll want to go up, but instead you go down. Or it just stops altogether. Dave continued writing. You don't think it's just old elevators? He asked. I think I know the difference, young man. Rose glared at Dave scornfully, then continued her litany of strange occurrences. Mrs. Green on the eighth floor hears strange bells in the middle of the night. Mr. Howard in 4G says that he hears a couple making whoopee in his spare bedroom every Saturday night. Dozens of people have been helped by Mr. Shoutensack, of course. He's all over the building. Dave scribbled furiously, trying to keep up with the roll call of spirits inhabiting the Oakley Arms. When she finished, he had filled up nearly six whole pages of unexplained sounds, spirits, ghosts, and other miscellaneous mysterious happenings. Dave shook out the writer's cramp in his hand. Thank you, Rose. This is all very helpful. He started to fold up his notebook, but then she leaned forward and spoke to him in a low, conspiratorial tone. Of course, the real nasty one is the X-Man. Dave froze at the mention of the serial killer, who had met his demise in this building. He flipped his notebook back over and picked up his pen. Were you here when that happened? He asked. Rose sat back and nodded solemnly. It was the same year I married and lost my husband, she said, glancing over at the wedding portrait. Can you tell me anything about the girl, Sarah Montgomery, the Axeman's last victim? She lived across the hall, didn't she? Rose became suddenly disgusted. Oh, that hussy? She got what was coming to her, if you ask me. What do you mean? Dave asked. He was sitting on the edge of his seat, the pen nearly poking a hole through his pad. He noticed how tense he was, set the pen down, and reached for the glass of milk. But his hand was shaking, and the glass rattled against the table as he picked it up. The noise broke Rose from her spell. A reassuring smile returned to her face. That was such a horrible time. Gregory, my husband, and I had just gotten married, and it seemed like he immediately lost interest in me. And then Miss Montgomery moved in across the hall. Well, the way she carried on with my husband. It was shameful. He left me shortly after she died. Sometimes I don't know what I ever saw in that man. Anyway, ever since he killed himself, the axe man, that is, he's been haunting this building. People say he shows up sometimes before bad things happen, as if he's causing them. Rose shuddered. If there's anything your Dr. Day can do to get rid of that one, I know we'd all appreciate it. And that's all I have to say about that, Rose declared, crossing her arms. Dave got the feeling that he wasn't going to get any more out of Rose. He closed his notebook and put his pen away. Thank you for your time, Rose. You were very helpful. Rose took on a sad, pouty expression when she saw that the remaining cookies were still untouched. You didn't like the cookies? Dave reacted instinctively, answering, They were fine. I just wanted to make sure I wrote down everything you had to say. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Let me give you a case. Before Dave could decline the offer, Rose was on her feet and scurrying back to the kitchen. She returned a moment later, struggling with a case of Girl Scout cookies. Dave rushed over to help her. Thank you, he said, taking the box. A moment later, Dave left the apartment with a case of cookies and the remaining ones from the tea tray in a plastic baggie. Emily walked out of the door next to Rose's on Dave's side of the hall. You were taking so long and decided to do your side as well. What's with the cookies? Don't ask. Okay. Two more floors to go. I'll take the one above. You take... Nope, Dave said with a surprising level of confidence. We're finishing this together. I'm not going into one of these apartments alone again. Emily shrugged and headed back to the elevator. Dave stopped at the garbage chute and tossed the cookies down the dark hole. 
listening to them bang against the metal walls all the way down. Thank you for listening to Part 9 of Near Death, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please remember to share Near Death and my weekly stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyandday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosick. Give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again and all the very best.